Turn, if you would, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Uh, I said a minute ago, we will, um, Lord willing, we will start our study of 1 Corinthians next Lord's Day. But I want to read this morning just James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. The apostle, uh, or actually the uh, James was, I like to call him the senior pastor of the church at Jerusalem, and he is writing this letter to um, his church that has dispersed around, um, really around the Roman Empire because of the rise of persecution. They have essentially run for their lives, and so James writes this letter to them. It's a letter of admonition, of encouragement, and also there is some uh, rebuke in here. But in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, he's reminding them of who is in control. He says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Help us to understand your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, um, I wonder if you have a life plan. I wonder if March of 2020 changed your life plan. So for some of you, um, you're in the middle of helping your children figure out the rest of their lives now, um, at least their careers or college. For others, you're enjoying retirement, and your life consists of um, busyness, maybe attending as many of your grandkids' games as you possibly can playing a few rounds with a little white ball, and also probably not shoveling snow. Still others are trying to figure out how they're going to pay for college or pay off the mortgage or maybe have a, a little left over for retirement. But my guess is that many of us are really just living day by day. And while we have hopes and dreams for the future, sometimes we're just not quite sure how to get there. So today, as we look at this passage in James chapter 4, we are reminded that this really is a passage of sovereignty and submission. It's about riches and poverty. It's about earthly wisdom and godly wisdom. It's about trials and testing. And James specifically addresses those who have some measure of wealth or at least some measure of ambition. And I would venture to guess that None of us would consider ourselves particularly wealthy, but we do live in at least one of the wealthiest nations on earth, and in reality, one of the wealthiest time periods of history. And so in this passage, James is addressing the small business owner. He's addressing a college student. He's addressing a person who's maybe considering taking a different job in order to make more money. 
Scripture here is addressing the person who is desiring to better themselves through financial means. In other words, Scripture is addressing all of us in here. But, but don't lose the forest for the trees. This passage is about following the will of God. This is a passage about God's will. It's not simply about someone who, who, who wants to make money. I believe that, in fact, that's just an example that James is using. But this is also not simply about tacking the phrase, Lord willing, onto all of our plans and goals. You know, th- this isn't the idea of, I'll see you tomorrow, well, Lord willing. Don't forget to say, Lord willing. God never merely just wants our words. He always wants our all. He wants everything about us. God wants our complete devotion because our God is a jealous God. Remember the warning for the people of Israel from from the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 10 to 15 says this, speaking specifically to the people of Israel. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from the face of the earth. So let's make a connection here. Think about our God uh, as a jealous God. This is why the, the marriage covenant, I'll use this as an illustration, this is why the marriage covenant is so sacred to us as Christians. Because it's not merely a contract, right? You do this and I'll do that. It's a, it's a reflection of God's relationship with His people. God's covenant with His people. And just like husbands and wives are to be completely devoted to each other, so we are to be completely devoted to God because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so when we look at this passage of Scripture, uh, like this from James chapter 4, We need to look beyond the surface to understand what is God really trying to teach us and so we can discern what He desires from us. As you look again at these verses, James 4, 13 to 17, I want you to consider these questions, okay? What drives you to make the decisions that you've made? So, for example, who to marry or where to settle down, which house to buy? Uh, what school district to live in, uh, which, which school for yourself to go to or vocation to pursue, pursue, which church should you attend. The world tells us, follow your heart. That same heart that the Bible describes as being deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Kent Hughes um, has written several books and commentaries, and he was for many years a pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. He said this, he said, So pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many, if not most, Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. So, so for example, do you know what God's will is concerning church? Do you know what God's will is concerning church? The Bible has a lot to say about church. It has a lot to say about reverential worship. The Bible actually has very little to say about fellowshipping with friends. It's there, don't get me wrong. It's even important, Acts 2.42, one of my favorite verses. They gave themselves to what? The apostles teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So it's there. But there is so much more in Scripture about reverential worship being the priority of the church. God is the focus of the church, not us. So that's a sermon, though, for another day, probably. So what does it mean to understand the will of God? That's just an example. What does it mean to understand the will of God? Augustine, he famously said, Love God and do as you please. And I think, at the core of that statement, I think he's right. Love God and do as you please. And I'm going to show you today um, that I think that he's right there. But for many Christians, and this is the gist of what Kent Hughes was saying, we've turned this around to say something like, do as you please and, and claim to love God. Or do as you please and tack God on at the end of the week. There's a big difference here. The difference is over which comes first, or in reality, which has the priority, doing as you please or loving God. Because to live life with the philosophy of do as you please and claim to love God, that's arrogant. It puts God in the backseat of your life when in reality, He is in the driver's seat. See, this is the arrogance. Remember that old bumper sticker? Probably you have to be over about 45 to remember this, but you remember the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? Co-pilot? He's flying the plane or driving the car or whatever. The... Don't think you are, buddy. You really think that you're in charge of your own life? So, today's passage, James chapter 4. In this, God's Word challenges our casual arrogance. And it's a casual arrogance. Through some hard-hitting words and just really just a few brief verses. And if you notice... What we're going to walk through together this morning is that there are really four attitudes that we often have toward God's will. Either we, A, ignore it, or we supersede it or override God's will, or we disobey it outright, or, fourth, we can submit to it. Mark chapter 3, verse 35, Jesus said this. He said, whoever does the will of God, he is my father and sister and mother. Jesus is saying, whoever is obedient to God's will is related to me, is part of my family. And this idea of being obedient to God's will, it actually, it actually encompasses the, the other characteristics of true believers, right? 
The Bible says there are certain things that Christians are, certain things that Christians do that you can tell that they are believers by their love for one another, for example, by their fruit. Well, another way, Jesus says, whoever does the will of God. This idea of doing, of being obedient to God's will, you know, nothing tells the world more clearly that you're a Christian than by your cheerful obedience to God's will. Nothing tells the world more clearly that you are a Christian than by your cheerful obedience to God's will. This is what David meant. Psalm chapter 40, verse 8, when he said this, he said, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Then he says in Psalm 143, verse 10, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your spirit lead me on level ground. David is saying, I delight to do your will, but teach me how, Lord. And these attitudes are are characteristic of God's people. In other words, if there is no desire to follow God's will, then we need to take a, a good hard look at whether or not we're even believers at all. If we have no desire to follow the will of God, we need to take a good hard look at ourselves to determine if we really believe in Him and trust in Him. One of the basic principles in our relationship with God is whether or not we are actively doing the will of God. Jesus, again, in John chapter 7, he says this, If anyone's will is to do the will of God, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. We will know Christ. Are you doing God's will? Are you actively involved in fulfilling God's will? If you are, then you are in God's will. See, living to do the will of God is the driving force of the Christian life. Peter wrote with regards to suffering for the cause of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2, he says that we are to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I'm kind of harping on this, right? Are you living to do God's will? 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That means that the only people who have eternal life are the people who do the will of God. And so we come to this passage, James chapter 4. We can see that doing the will of God is actually a a test of true faith. This passage is another way to examine our own hearts and see if we are true believers. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, are you willing to do the will of God, whatever that is? Are you interested in the will of God? John MacArthur said, constant disregard for and constant disinterest in the will of God is the surest evidence of the presence of pride. See, we often say, I am the ruler of my own life. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm my own sovereign. And this kind of pride will keep us from saving faith. That's what James wrote about in verse 6, just in a couple of verses up there. When he said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James approaches this topic in a very practical way. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives an illustration here. And really what James is doing here in these few verses is he sees a specific problem that a certain group of people have. 
So let's get into this. He sees a specific problem here in verses 13 to 17 that a specific group of people have. Then he identifies the bigger picture, the the root sin behind the problem, and he makes an example of this certain group for all of us to learn from. So let's go back to those four attitudes. This will be our outline. The first attitude towards God's will that we see here in verses 13 and 14 is that we ignore it. We often ignore God's will. Look again at verses 13 and 14. James 4, 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? If you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James starts off when he says, come now. He's saying, listen up. Let me have your undivided attention. I have something very important to say. And then he says, you who say, and the way that this is written, the tense of that phrase, come now, you who say, he means that that their line of thinking is very well thought out. This is their claim. This is something that they've been planning for and working toward. It's clear that they have, from, from just reading this and James' sort of rebuke here, it's clear that they have no regard for God's will at all. In fact, they don't even mention it. See, they have made these plans as if God didn't even exist. And and who is he talking to? James is writing specifically to to members of his church. James is writing specifically to people who who are part of the church in Jerusalem and are now scattered, still doing business, still working, still providing for their families, and now they live in different places. The people who ignore God's will or the people who live their lives as if God either isn't interested or isn't around or, or, or maybe God's just not paying attention. What do we believe about God even in our day-to-day lives, even in our planning? Why would God care about me? He's got a whole universe to hold together. He's got kings and presidents that are threatening each other with war. There's, there's all kinds of things going on in the world that are much more important than, than what I do for work for the next year. Why would God care about these, these minor decisions that I would make? Do you remember the hymn, His Eye is on the Sparrow? Remember that hymn? It's taken from a passage in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus is pointing out in that passage that we have much more value, we as, as people made in the image of God, have much more value than many sparrows. And that passage means more than just simply don't be discouraged because God is a bird lover. And how much more does He love people than birds? It's a reminder of how much God cares for us even when we ignore Him, even when we're not paying attention. And this example here in verse 13 of a businessman, it hits us because so much of our lives are spent doing the very thing that this guy is doing, looking for ways to make money. And there's nothing wrong with that, so don't don't hear me as harping against that. There's nothing wrong with that. We need food. We need clothing and housing and transportation. We need to pay for college and retirement and all of those things, and I just... I just commended you for how generous you were towards supporting New Path. So I'm not saying we shouldn't be looking for ways to better our 
families and our churches and our the problem is there's no place for God in the attitude of the person in verse 13. He's not paying any attention to the Lord. So look at the plan. I'll show this to you. Look at his plan. This person choose their own time, today or tomorrow. They choose their own location. We'll go into such and such a town, and, 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 and then they choose their own time frame. We'll spend a year there. They choose their own mission. We're going to trade. They choose their own objective to make a profit. Now, now, again, I want you to hear me. Listen to this very carefully. There is no problem with being in business. Okay? There is no problem with striving to make a profit. In fact, it's good. The Bible contains many examples of successful, godly businessmen and women. In fact, sometimes even prosperity is clearly seen throughout the Scriptures as a blessing from God. So that's not the issue in this passage. The problem here is what's not said. There's no place for God in this business model. There's no submission to God's will. There's no consideration of God's word, of, of biblical principles. There's no prayer and seeking God's direction. God's will is completely ignored. This is what we sometimes call practical atheism. And practical atheism creeps into our life when we, when we live as if God doesn't exist. Sure, we acknowledge God on a Sunday morning. But then we give no thought at all to him during the week. So we have to ask the question, are we devoted to God or are we devoted simply to ourselves? I think that many Christians are guilty of this. I know, I know I've been guilty of this way too many times. We effectively usurp God's sovereignty and we put ourselves in his place. And so I'm now omniscient. I'm now all-knowing. I'm now omnipotent or all-powerful. I'm now invincible. I am now my own God, making my own decisions. And yet, verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And yet, we are ignorant. We don't know what will happen to us on Monday, May 3rd, 2021. We don't know. And, and chances are, nothing out of the ordinary will happen to us tomorrow. Right? Just like last Monday. Chances are, nothing out of the ordinary will happen to us until the extraordinary happens. Like, for example, maybe a pandemic. Until the government shuts us down. Until somebody dies suddenly until we could put all kinds of scenarios in there, right? See, planning without God, ignoring God, leads to foolish ignorance. James is essentially saying the same thing as, as Proverbs 27, verse 1, which says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. So much of life, so much of our lives is beyond our control, right? One missed stop sign, our world changes. One diagnosis, our world changes. A poor decisions by your spouse, by your children or your parents or your employer. Random acts of violence, whether by another person or, or maybe by nature. We simply don't know what tomorrow 
will bring. And yet there is one who does know. I want you to listen. In fact, turn over to Psalm 37. I want you to listen to verses 1 to 13. Psalm 37. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. There is one who knows what tomorrow brings. This is a psalm of David, and he says this. Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. When um, calamity comes, and it will, in one measure or another, we will face some sort of calamity, suffering in our lives. When it comes... How we respond to suffering will show what we really believe about God. How you respond to suffering, however you define suffering, will show what you really believe about God. And and I can tell you, and I think you would agree with me, nothing has made this more clear, at least in my eyes, than the last 14 months. What do we really believe about God? We are a fragile people. What is our lives? What are our lives anyway? Your life is a, is a visible breath on a cold day, a mist that soon vanishes. It, it's temporary, the scripture tells us. In the grand scheme of time, our lives are short and generally insignificant. Maybe a couple of us, maybe a couple of you will be in the history books. Maybe, maybe you will do something that is remembered for a few generations, but chances are probably not, right? Probably not. As Christians, we should not ignore the will of God in our planning. Why? Because we know that we are ignorant, and we are fragile, and we are frail, and we need God. So not only do we ignore God's will, we sometimes supersede God's will or override God's will. So look at verse 16, James, back in James chapter 4, verse 16. James says, as it is, you boast in, sorry, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
These are those who deny God's will. In fact, they often scoff at God's will. They're not simply ignoring God, acting as if He isn't even there. They arrogantly believe that their will is superior to God's. So they'll say things like this. Well, the Bible doesn't mean that. Whatever that is, right? Usually it is that sin that they are participating in, calling it sin and saying you should not do that thing. Well, the Bible doesn't mean that. This is when we take the commandments of God and we either write them off as maybe suggestions or we find a way to explain them away as, well, that doesn't really apply to us. Or probably most often, we just don't even think about it. We just don't even think about the sins that we commit. Let me give you an example, and this will tie us back to the study of Titus. Matthew 28, verses 19 and, or 18 to 20 says this, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a command. These are commands of God that, that often Christians just kind of ignore. Or they say, well, that's for other people. I'm not really outgoing. I'm not a preacher. I don't think we can apply that excuse to our lives. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, based on that authority. So are we making disciples? This is actually God's will, that we be making disciples. Or do we have better idea? See, the people that James is addressing there in verse 16, really through this passage, but specifically verse 16, they're not only those practical atheists like the ignorant who only acknowledge God on Sundays, they actually make themselves out to be their own gods. They believe in God, and yet they actually believe that their own will is superior to God. Now, they probably wouldn't admit it like that, but they will quickly make excuses as to why their ideas are better than his. And this word for boasting here, come now, you who boast, it's kind of an interesting word because by itself it's not negative. We think of boasting as being a negative thing. But this actually could be translated loud-mouthed rejoicing. Loud-mouthed rejoicing. But in this case, it is that vocal self-worship. This is the self-made man. I got to be where I am by working hard. I did this. I did it my way, right? James is not saying that all loud-mouthed rejoicing is sin. Just this kind of boasting in our own accomplishments, our own planning, our own supremacy. Think about this for a second. As Christians, what ought we boast in? What ought Christians boast in? We can boast in Christ's death. We can loud-mouthedly rejoice in the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. We can, in fact, loud-mouthedly rejoice in our own weaknesses that God's strength might be made known. We can boast about our salvation being all of God's work for His glory. All of our loud-mouthed rejoicing in any of our own strengths, in any of our own accomplishments, in any of our own triumphs, however, 
It's evil. And this word evil that James uses here, this is the same word that is used to describe the evil spirits in the Gospels, particularly in Luke's writing. So when you know that God has a will, that God has a desire, and you plan and you act in a way that says, no thanks, you're arrogantly, loud-mouthedly rejoicing, we are doing this, in our own abilities. And we're just like the evil spirits. That's what James is saying. This is what God thinks of our boasting in ourselves. We have to to stop believing that we know better than God. We have to stop thinking that our will is more important than God's will. We need to stop boasting in our own accomplishments and boast only in the cross. I'm, in some ways, grateful for this last year because it's like God put the brakes on us and said, you need to boast in one thing. You're going, to stay, you're going to stay in your rooms for a while and think about this. We can boast only in the cross. So either ignore God's will, or we supersede, override God's will. And the third attitude that we often have is to just simply outright disobey it. Verse 17 So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the person who knows that there is a God. They would tell you that they believe in God. They know that God has a will, but they just simply don't do it. So whoever knows the right thing to do, that's God's will. That's what he's referring to there. He knows the right thing to do, and he fails to do it. For him it is sin. We need to admit that we all too frequently fall into this category. We are often double-minded, was a phrase that he used back in verse 8. We get trapped and hung up in the things of the world, and we don't pay attention to the things of God. And sometimes the reason for that is because the things of the world are the tangibles. They're the things that we can see, the things that we can smell, the things that we can taste, the things that we can drive, the things that we can step into and sit down on and wear the tangibles that we get hung up on. Sometimes it's because the things of this world gets us pats on the back from people around us, from our neighbors, from our bosses, from coworkers, from whoever. Sometimes the things of this world make us look good and they stroke our ego and they puff up our pride. And yet we disobey God's will. We have a knowledge of God. We understand His will. We know what is good, what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. We know what is right, and we just simply disobey. So, you've sat there long enough. That's sort of the the law portion of the passage. Let's get to the gospel. So, let me ask you this question. Can we know God's will? Can we know God's will? Can you know what God's will is for your life? Can you know, for example, this is the one that um, the young people often struggle with. Can you know who you should marry or where you should send your kids to college? Can you know how much money you should spend on your next home? Can you know what God's will is for your retirement? Can we know God's will? So let me answer that in three ways. No, yes, and maybe. Okay? So no, first of all. 
This is God's sovereign will. These are the secret things of God. This is God's decree, his predetermined plan for everything that happens in the universe. His, this plan that no one can change. His plans will inevitably come to pass. So we, we made all kinds of plans in 2019, and God said, ah, hold on a minute, right? We can make all kinds of plans, and no one had any idea that 2020 was going to be what 2020 was and continues to be. This is God's sovereign will. And these things can really only be figured out by looking at his word, the things that he has chosen to reveal to us, and by looking at history, how he has worked through the ages. And so, for example, we know that it is God's sovereign will that Christ will return, that he will judge the quick and the dead. But he's not given us all of the details. He's given us some of the details, and the ones that he's given us are kind of hard to figure out. We can acknowledge that. <laughs> so can we know God's will? In some ways, no. But in some ways, absolutely. We can know, for example, His moral will. We know the commands and the instructions that He has revealed to us in Scripture. We know those things that, that teach us how to live and what to believe. And in this, God's will is clear. One of the big pictures of Scripture for us and God's will for us is He wants us to live holy lives. He has called us His own, and He says He has um, called us a people for His own possession. He is purifying us. He's concerned with our Christ-likeness and our obedience to Him. So can we know His will? Yes, God's will is that we become more like Christ. Then the other part of this is, can we know God's will, the maybe? This, we could say, is God's individual plan for your life. And I say maybe because we, we know that there are general instructions that apply to us specifically. So let's go to that one big one. The question, who should I marry? The answer is a Christian of the opposite sex who is not already married to somebody else. The Bible is clear about those things. Beyond that, that's where some discernment comes in, right? Advice and counsel from others that we love and trust. See, we are to submit to God's sovereign will. We could apply those questions, not just to who should I marry, but we could apply that to all kinds of things about retirement, about just day-to-day -day decisions that we make. All kinds of things. We are to submit to God's sovereign will. We are to obey His moral will. And then listen what He will do. This is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You've probably heard this, but listen to it in this context. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. And He will make straight your paths. So what are we to do with God's will? Well, we don't ignore it. We don't override it. We don't disobey it. Instead, we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. We lean not on our own understanding. In everything, we acknowledge Him. Why? Because your life is like a vapor and He directs your paths. I skipped verse 15. So go back and look at that verse. James 4.15. I skipped this on purpose. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This is the idea of submitting to God's will. This is such a simple little statement about that submission, submitting to God's will. But this attitude of submission makes a world of difference in our lives. Just just think about the last couple of years. But let me close with this. As we consider submitting to God's will, what is God's will? What is it exactly that we are supposed to do? The Bible actually tells us explicitly. So these are the sort of the gospel notes I want you to take away from here today. Okay, What is God's will? I'm going to give you four passages of Scripture that answer that question. The first is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. And that passage, that verse says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to an acknowledgement of the truth. God's will is that people would believe in Jesus Christ. Do we take, in our day-to-day decision-making, do we take this aspect of God's will into account when we make plans? When you think about where to raise your kids, when we think about retirement or vacation or even just how you can serve the body of Christ, maybe just by showing some simple kindness to others, do we take the fact that God's will is that He desires all people to be saved and to come to an acknowledgement of the truth? Second verse, or pair of verses, is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. And that passage says that we are to be filled with the Spirit instead of being filled with wine, or essentially acting foolishly sinful. Because when we are filled with the Spirit, then we have the fruit of the Spirit flowing out of us. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes on to say there that this, this attitude will affect our worship as a church. It will affect our singing. It will affect our thankfulness as we take the bread and the cup. It will affect our encouragement of one another and our reverence for Christ. We are to be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit. It is God's will that we be controlled by the Spirit. Third is... 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 7. This passage says that it is God's will that we be sanctified. Let me read this for you. It's really clear. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, let he, uh, Paul now defines that. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Here's how he defines it. That you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. It is the will of God that you be holy. And then finally, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, we're told to be prepared to suffer for doing good. It is the will of God that we suffer for doing good. It just might be, have you considered this? It just might be God's will that we're the last generation of Americans to understand religious freedom. Five years ago, we probably wouldn't have even considered that. But, but it might be true. 
What happens if we're the last generation of Americans? That doesn't mean we'll be the last generation of Christians in America. What happens if we were the last generation of Americans to understand religious freedom? What if that's God's will? 1 Peter 3.17 tells us that we are to be prepared to suffer for doing good. In the history of the church, um, religious freedom in America has had a pretty, an abnormally long run, honestly. Jesus stated in John 15.18, remember when we were going through John's gospel, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. So those are, those are four areas of life in which the Bible clearly lays out God's will. And I believe that if we understand and we work to submit to those, we work to put those uh, active in our lives, then the other areas of life's questions, the examples that I gave, will work themselves out. Because your desires will be the same as his desires. And remember Psalm 34 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If we're submitting to the will of God, our, the desires of our heart will be what he desires for us. Let's pray. Fathers, we consider these things that are um, often talked about and sometimes hard to um, apply. Lord, I pray that we would um, be a people who are desiring to do God's will, your will, Lord. And so as we come to the table, we know that it is Christ's will that we proclaim his death until he returns. That it is Christ's will that we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That it is Christ's will that we renew the covenant, be reminded of what he has done for us. And so, Father, we come to the table, Lord, as your blood-bought saints. We come to the table, Lord, with thankfulness in our hearts today, Lord. That we can turn to you for answers, for help in our times of trouble, for encouragement, Lord, we pray that you would return quickly, that Christ would come quickly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.